Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Will Gorman, a research scientist in the Electricity Markets and Policy Department at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, about a hugely important but quite technical topic, the interconnection queue. In recent years, the interconnection queue, the line that power plant developers have to wait in before they connect their planes to the grid, has grown dramatically. This might sound like a wonky bureaucratic process, and it is, but it's also hugely consequential for decarbonizing the U.S. power sector. Because unless we shorten the interconnection queue and lower associated interconnection costs, it's going to be that much harder to clean up the power grid and achieve our climate goals. So stay with us. Will Gorman from Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, welcome to Resources Radio. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. And Will, we are going to talk today about the interconnection queue and interconnection costs. And uh, don't be afraid, listeners. I know these are large words and it's a it's a complicated topic, but Will's going to help us understand uh, this issue and, and why it's so important. But before we dive into our subject matter, we always ask our guests how they got interested working on energy or environmental issues, whether there's like some you know, inspiration when you were a child or whether you came to this field later in life. So, Will, what drew you into this world? Yeah, so uh, it's a good question. I like that you guys are opening uh, with this one. I feel like it's a nice way to personalize uh, our very technical conversation, presumably, that we're going to have. So, so my path to energy and environmental issues did not really start uh, with uh, some transcendent, you know, childhood experience uh, or, or memory. But really, you know, it was rather through inspirational mentorship and in, in community in college. So, so I grew up in Texas, and in my childhood, you know, was more interested in playing the, the bassoon and orchestras and basketball with friends, uh, really, than anything professional. So, in college at the University of Texas, I became a chemical engineering intern uh, after my sophomore year at Chevron, uh, which I'm sure folks uh, probably all know as the major international uh, oil company. And I was working on environmental remediation issues, uh, and it was really the exposure to geopolitics, the scale of the energy sector that uh, sent me down on my first, but but not my last YouTube rabbit hole uh, journey. Uh, and I discovered this public TV program entitled Energy at the Movies, uh, which was put on by a very charismatic, at least I, you know, I thought was charismatic, uh, professor named Michael Weber. Uh, who happened to also be based at UT Austin. And so this TV program, you know, really captured my imagination uh, first because uh, growing up, I really liked movies uh, in my youth and, and I still do, you know, when I find the time for them. But I, I also thought it was just really interesting to have this historical depiction of the energy sector kind of told through the lens of Hollywood that showed, you know, how critical energy was to societal's cultural development. Obviously, it's important to its economic development as well. Um, so anyway, so all that being said, I didn't have any overlapping skills, uh, but I did pester Weber with a lot of emails. Uh, a year and a half later, he let me into his group. You know, what I worked on with him wasn't really that important, uh, so I won't repeat it here, but it was really the passion of his grad students. I should give a shout out to Josh Rhodes, who is my mentor. You know, at the time, and it was that passion for the impending environmental, climatic challenges that we'll need to solve during my lifetime that, that really inspired me 
to, to learn more. And so, you know, I've been hooked. I haven't left the field since. And, and that's, that's the story. That's great. Yeah. We, um, uh, I know Michael and, and energy at the movies. That's a really great, uh, great idea. So people should totally check that out and we should really have Michael on the show. I don't think we've ever asked him to, to come on. So that's definitely a gap that we need to fill. I would um, like to hear his, uh, answer to that question for sure. So, okay, cool. So, um, Let's get into our subject uh, of the day, which is interconnection queue and interconnection costs. And uh, listeners probably know that, uh, you know, this has really become a big issue with respect to decarbonizing the power system in the United States. But let's start off just by defining these terms. So interconnection costs and the interconnection queue, what do those terms mean, Will? Yeah, so I think when talking about interconnection, I think it's important to first start by just understanding basically the two high-level approaches that we have in the United States to just developing new generation. And so in a little bit more than half of the country, we've opened up generation development to competition. So private entities can pursue generator development, participating in a variety of electricity markets. In the other half of the country, we have these vertically integrated utilities that go through a more intentional procurement and planning process. Uh, where they're deciding to build new generators. And so describing that up front is just important because regardless of those two institutional structures for project development, basically all new generators that need to, that want to come online, provide power to people, have to go through what you have termed uh, is this interconnection process. And that's where the organizations that control and operate the transmission network ensure that when that new generator is trying to get onto the electrical grid and provide power to our homes or businesses, what have you, it can do so reliably uh, without negatively impacting safe operations. So, so to, you know, that's a little bit of a roundabout way to get more specifically to your question here, which uh, is basically that, you know, the interconnection queue is the line that new generators have to wait and enter into as the transmission network operators that I just mentioned uh, undergo a series of fairly technical studies um, to try to ultimately better understand what that system impact will be that, that that new facility will have and whether or not we need to undergo certain amount of transmission network system upgrades or investment to ensure those, those reliable uh, operations. So, the last thing I'll say is that if if that system operator, if that transmission provider needs to make upgrades, they will ultimately pass those costs onto specific generators that caused those system impacts. And so that's why you have these interconnection queues and the resulting interconnection costs. But you know, as with a lot of things in the electricity sector, the devil is uh, definitely in the details, uh, you know, when it comes to the how efficient that process is and what the appropriate cost assignment, you know, an allocation might be. I'm sure as our conversation unfolds here, we'll, we'll get into some of those details. But I think that that's probably the right place to, to stop and keep the conversation flowing. Yeah, that's perfect. So um, so now that we have a general sense of what these terms are, um, you know, some listeners may have heard that the interconnection queue has been getting longer in recent months and the interconnection costs have been going up pretty dramatically. Um, so what's going on with that? Why are the queues getting longer? Why are the costs going up? From my vantage point, 
you know, I really see two big factors that are somewhat interrelated uh, that have led us to, to where we are today. You're definitely right. Costs have gone up. Uh, the size of these queues uh, have gone up. And so but the first macro trend, I think, on the grid today, uh, which probably comes, you know, is no surprise to this audience, especially if you're active listeners of this podcast, uh, is that as a society, you know, we're trying to undergo one of the probably largest and definitely fastest energy transitions that we've ever undertaken. And so, of course, you know, this is driven by the environmental challenges posed by climate change, you know, the various public policy pushes, like the bill that was passed by the Biden administration last year. Uh, it, but it's also being driven you know, by the incredible cost declines and corresponding economic competitiveness, really, of wind, solar, and storage. Uh, and so the electrical grid, I think it's you know interesting to note that we have today was, of course, built out over almost a century, if not more. You know, and now we are asking for a pretty substantial transformation uh, of that system to happen over the matter of decades. So I think in my mind that uh, definitely poses some serious institutional challenges. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we've seen these these cues. I think the other big trend uh, that I'd want to mention here is the lack of some substantial transmission build out of the electricity network uh, over the last decade uh, or so. And so there really are only a handful of ways that we build out this grid uh, and expand this grid in, in the country. And the first is large scale, regional, inter-regional transmission planning processes. And then the other is what we're talking about you know, today, uh, this, this more piecemeal interconnection process that, that does build out the system, uh, but does it incrementally you know, one generator at a time. So though we have had large transmission expansions in the past, so I think a good example of this, if, uh, listeners don't know about it, is in Texas, we had a big $7 billion expansion uh, in the late 2000s to integrate a bunch of wind resources. We haven't really had a lot of that over the last five to 10 years. And so, you know, when you fail to build new lines through this, this transmission planning type of process, uh, you will start to now rely more and more on this interconnection process, which is obviously the focus of what we're talking about today. And uh, that becomes a challenge because it really wasn't designed uh, to do that. Okay. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And so people have a sense of the timescales and dollar figures that we're talking about here. When we say the, the queue has gotten long and the costs have gotten high, like, can you give us some metrics to help understand that, like general timeframes that, you know, certain projects are facing? And I know there, I'm sure there's wide variation around the country, but can you just kind of put some general numbers on this trend? Yeah, so those uh, statistics that you are asking about here are some of the, the key research efforts that we're leading at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And I think uh, it'll be helpful to, to contextualize this problem. So yeah, so for, for much of the decade between roughly 2000 to 2010, we were averaging anywhere from 500 to 1,000 new requests. So this is new projects that were applying to join this interconnection queue. And that, that roughly equated to 150 to 200 gigawatts of, of new power plant capacity each year. So over the last decade, uh, however, uh, so now 2010 through you know, the modern times, we have started to average 2,500 
to 3,000 requests each year, representing anywhere from 400 to 600 gigawatts. And so if you're not tracking this here, that's, that's roughly a three to five times an expansion. Uh, so that's a lot. Um, and, and so, you know, another way to contextualize this is what that means is while, you know, we talked about these long lines in 2010, there was about 500 gigawatts of capacity waiting in that line. Today, that number is quadrupled to 2000 gigawatts. Just so you are aware, there's about 1300 gigawatts of total generating capacity on the US grid today. So 2000 gigawatts trying to apply a system that's currently only made up uh, of 1300 gigawatts. And so, you know, and I think you know, one of your questions was like, so what does that mean for wait times and, and the length of, you know, how long people are, are waiting to go through this process. And so uh, that number has also doubled. Uh, so we, it used to take roughly one and a half years to get through this interconnection process. Today, it takes three years uh, to do so. Um, so now we're going to talk a little bit about the costs, which, you know, collecting data on interconnection costs, I think it's first important to mention it's incredibly challenging, uh, especially because the Energy Information Agency, so one of the leading data providers of uh, energy sector data in the country, stopped collecting this data themselves roughly a decade ago. So, which obviously <laughs> poses a challenge. So our under team had to take a massive research initiative on, got thousands of individual Kind of interconnection studies that that we were tracking via PDFs. And what we found somewhat surprising is that actually for projects that come online, ultimately, you know, complete the interconnection process, their costs to interconnect have been relatively flat or stable. So it hasn't changed that much. What was surprising and an important finding was that projects that ultimately withdraw from these queues, we haven't talked so much about kind of what the what happens at the end of the process. Well, one of the, the endpoints could be that a project decides they don't want to get built, and so they withdraw. And so costs for those projects moved from roughly a hundred to two hundred dollars a kilowatt to two hundred to six hundred dollars a kilowatt. So doubling or tripling uh, in some cases. And so I think for us, you know, it was hard. We didn't do any type of serious causal or empirical econometric study here. But one of the things these results kind of raised for us is that maybe it's not much of a surprise that the total amount of withdrawals, so projects that have stopped trying to be developed, uh, that have occurred each year ha have grown significantly over time. For sure. that That's great. And so people, again, just sort of have a sense of the magnitude here. You, you know, you put those costs in terms of per kilowatt of capacity. And but if you imagine, let's say, like a large wind farm that's trying to get on and it's facing, you know, high costs, uh, you know, a project maybe that's a hundred megawatt wind farm. Like, what types of costs might a large project like that be facing? Just so people have a sense of the the magnitude of these these ultimate dollar amounts. Yeah. So the magnitude here is in the millions uh, of dollar ranges. So uh, you can imagine uh, so that a hundred megawatts. Uh, I would say. Uh, if you are on the upper end of the costs that I was reporting, that's $20 million, something along those lines, maybe even more. And honestly, we've seen, so I'm reporting averages when I responded to the question for you, but there's outliers here, of course. I mean, we've seen projects getting charged $100 million uh, if, or more. Those are the ones that definitely drop out of, of this process. And so that that it's an important to know that magnitude because that's when we're talking about kind of efficient or inappropriate 
cost allocation and whether or not we should be building out large sections of the transmission network via the interconnection process. I think people really think about those large costs getting assigned to individual generators and are kind of wondering, well, why, why are we doing that? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, one of the motivations for, uh, you know, having this podcast is, um, some news reporting that I was reading about a large wind farm that um, several native nations have been trying to build for like probably over a decade in, in South Dakota. And it's called the Oseti Sakowin Wind Project. And it's a really interesting project. But my understanding is that they've basically dropped the project because the interconnection costs uh, were so high, you know, in the tens, tens of millions of dollars and, and maybe even higher, if, if I remember correctly from the reporting. Imagine it's October 1952. There's no such thing as the Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act, no federal fuel standards for cars, and the Environmental Protection Agency doesn't yet exist. That was the year Resources for the Future was created. And ever since October 1952, RFF has been developing innovative policy solutions for the most pressing environmental, energy, and natural resource issues. As we commemorate RFF's founding, please consider donating to help us carry on this critical work for another 70 years. Visit rff.org donate to make your gift to RFF today. So, um, you know, this, this raises one question for me. Um, at the beginning of our conversation, you said one of the causes for these lengthy delays is, you know, the speed and scale of the energy transition that we need to undertake to reach our uh, climate goals, uh, as well as the, you know, declines and costs of renewable technology, especially wind and solar. Uh, so I'm wondering if, is there anything different about wind and solar projects um, that make them uh, more challenging to interconnect to the grid? Does it require sort of longer interconnection studies or additional build out that that we, we didn't necessarily require from fossil fire generators that are uh, more dispatchable like natural gas or coal fired power plants? Yeah, no, great, great question. And I, I would say, you know, it's a little bit of both. There, there's no doubt that what we've just been talking about, this massive increase in the total number of projects uh, being planned, like that is leading to a strain. Uh, just the sheer number, you know, the, the institutions of these transmission providers and the workforces and their processes were based on a different paradigm and different speed uh, and different size. So so that is no doubt a factor here. An, an anecdote I, I like to share especially when trying to cut these transmission operators some slack, is that uh, a lot of the smartest staff members at those companies or those uh, regional transmission providers, they're getting poached and hired by the developers because of the problem. Uh, but that's obviously, and, and the private developers, you know, can pay more for that those valuable skills because uh, they need help interconnecting their projects. And so anyways, and that all relates to this, this it's just the scale of the problem. But I do think there are some qualitative differences. It's not just about the length of the queue. And what the, maybe the first and maybe most important one to point out here is that renewable projects uh, are oftentimes much smaller on a capacity basis than traditional fossil fired power plants. So, and what I mean by that is that, you know, if you want to replace one large coal plant or one large natural gas facility, you're likely going to have to develop multiple wind farms, multiple solar farms, perhaps a few storage plants to make sure that you have the capacity. And that just says something about the relative 
gigawatt size of those plants related to the fossil fuel plants. And so more applications, more individual developers, that means more studies these organizations need to do, and then the more time needed to then process any one study because there's just the sheer numbers. So that's a little bit what's driving some of the length. I think at the same time, and I think you were maybe getting to this uh, you know, in your question, is that renewable power potential is driven not really by where humans may want to, to put a project, but it's where the geographic you know, solar and wind resources are. So, and unfortunately, uh, that's not typically correlated with where society has built out current transmission infrastructure over the last century. So oftentimes these studies can find quite large investments, similar to the case study that you had just cited in South Dakota for that tribal resource. Oftentimes they're not cited close to a transmission line. And so what that means is that the studies don't necessarily take longer, but the likelihood of a study showing those really high costs, that the probability of that can go up. And if there's really high costs, developers might ultimately withdraw from the queue, which, and we haven't gotten to this feedback loop issue yet, but I guess I'll, it's, I think it's good to mention now, if you withdraw from the queue, that has downstream consequences for everyone else. You know, this is a, this is a single file line. Someone above you withdraws, that can lead to cascading restudies. And so it's that chain reaction that can happen when one project withdraws, maybe because there's a high cost to it, uh, that can really impact everybody else and extend the, the time that it takes. So there are some, some differences, uh, you know, that, that are worth, worth noting to build some intuition, I guess, you know, for what's happening here. Absolutely. So I think we have a pretty good sense of what the problem is now, sort of the scale of the challenge, some of the drivers of, of the challenge. Uh, let's talk now about, you know, approaches to address the problem. So um, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, uh, recently finalized a new rule uh, that makes some changes to the interconnection process. And, and I don't know the details of it, uh, so I'm hoping you can uh, help us understand it. What's the rule? What's it trying to do? Yeah, no, uh, this was a this was a rule that we've long been been waiting for. You know, the first announced notice of proposed rulemaking came out in 2021, so it's been two years in the making. And at a high level, you know, the goal of this rule was to bring the country up to a certain level of standard with how we process projects through the queue. Uh, and I will say that there is a lot in this rule. This rule is 1,400 pages. Uh, so I think it's one of the longest FERC orders I've certainly ever seen. We're not going to get into all those nitty gritty details in this one 30 minute podcast, but uh, I will say the engaged listener, you know, definitely that document is public. So if you want some fun uh, weekend reading, uh, feel free to dive in. But I'll try to provide the SparkNotes version here. Uh, and so there are three main areas I'd say that, that the interconnection reform was trying to impact. Uh, these are going to be somewhat jargony, and I'll, I'll unpack them a bit, but that's reforms to implement a first-ready, first-served cluster process. Uh, the second area were reforms that focused on the speed of the interconnection process. And then the third area that they were focusing on uh, were reforms to try to incorporate more technological advancement. So to start with this first-ready, first-served cluster idea, it's really trying to increase the efficiency of the process. And so what first ready, first served means is that rather than kind of 
taking the cue as given in the sense that you have to study the first person in line, the second person after that, et cetera, et cetera. The idea is that, oh no, let's prioritize projects that have more land agreements, permits, off-taking agreements, basically projects that have more commercial readiness requirements. So that was one part of that. And the hope was that we're trying to make sure that projects that apply to the queue and remain in the queue are serious about developing. Because as I mentioned, we want to avoid this cascading withdrawal problem. So the, the second process, this cluster study concept, is moving beyond the serial process, which I talked about earlier with these cross-dependency issues, um, which can lead to those challenges of the cascades of restudies. The cluster study approach basically says, no, let's take tens to hundreds of projects that may be in the same geographic zone. Let's study them all in one batched study. So let's try to take advantage of maybe some economies of scale with that batch processing and maybe avoid some of the interdependencies, though those don't fully go away. Okay, so that's the, the first ready, you know, first served cluster process. I, and as I said, this is probably maybe the most significant, most important element. Um, the, the second idea, you know, how are they going to increase the processing speed? Uh, that, of course, is a great goal target, but, but all this reform really did was increase the penalties, the financial penalties on the transmission operators who failed to deliver studies uh, over time, which is important. We want, we want those transmission operators to be motivated to do these studies. Uh, I think it's unclear, you know, what, what the impact uh, of that, that will be. And then the last element, uh, which gets a little bit wonky, this is definitely going to increase the wonk meter uh, of these these questions here, is that they changed or tried to standardize the process of affected system studies. And when I say affected systems, what you should think, be thinking about is, you know, maybe this generator is interconnecting in Kansas, uh, but the way that the network is synced up, it could have an impact in New York. And so there's an affected system out there. And historically, this process was somewhat ad hoc, how New York would impact a Kansas project. It wasn't very standardized. And so this reform, I think, did a good job of trying to more standardize that process to avoid some of the kind of loops when you're dealing with a lot of different jurisdictions that, that can happen. So that's uh, those are two elements of processing speed. I have only one last thing. I know I'm going long here, but it's a lot of, a lot of stuff in here. So one last thing uh, I'll say, and this is related to some of the reforms to increase the technologies, uh, I think grid enhancing technologies uh, that could be used to upgrade the transmission network to integrate new generators. Uh, and I think the idea here is that we're not fully exploring the full suite of technologies available to make sure that we can integrate these new generation resources. If we do require that those are considered, maybe that will make the process cheaper. So, okay, so I'll stop there. That was a lot there. there. There is more that I, you know, I could unpack, but we don't have all day. So I'll stop and, and uh, but again, interested readers that that, that document is uh, of course public. Uh, so feel free to take a deep dive in it. Right, for sure. And, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes, of course, so people can, can click on it, print it out and take it to the beach. Um, so we'll, I think this might be our last question before we go to top of the stack. And it's just like, can you give us a sense of, how effective you think the order will be in clearing some of these long uh, wait times and, and high interconnection costs. I know 
you know, you don't have a crystal ball and, uh, and, and neither does FERC, but, um, you know, directionally, do you think this is going to move things in the right direction? And like, are there additional reforms that you think are going to be needed, uh, so that we as a country can, you know, decarbonize the grid as fast as we want to? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so this, of course, is the the billion dollar question here, Daniel. You know, everyone is going to have a little bit of a different take. And so, you know, I think the my take, I guess, uh, is that this rule was an important one. You know, it signifies to the country that the the top regulators know that interconnection is a big issue to work on. And of course, you know, we only have four for commissioners right now, and they're balanced between Republicans and Democrats. And so it's notable that all the commissioners agreed to make this rule final. So they were all providing concurring opinions. So so that, you know, I think that's an important you know, positive note uh, to, to state here. But I think the emerging consensus, which I tend to agree with, is that this is an incremental step, step in the right direction, but, but it's not going to get us to the pace of interconnection required to, you know, really fully unleash decarbonization. And so why is that? So, you know, the first thing to mention is that a number of the items that I just summarized, you know, in, in responding to your previous question, uh, is that some of those have already been implemented uh, by some of the larger, more sophisticated operators in the country. So think in, in MISO, this is the transmission operator representing a large swath of the Midwest down to Louisiana, the, the operator in California, they've been doing this cluster study process for years, uh, and they still have backlogged queues. Um, so I think there's some uncertainty about what effect uh, that will will have. And that's true about some of the other uh, rules, you know, that I mentioned that, that they might marginally improve the problem, but some of these things ha have already been adopted. Now, I think that all being said, there's no doubt that there are some smaller regions that would not have instituted any of these reforms had FERC not done it. So I think there is some progress here, but I do think it is incremental. You know, in terms of uh, this last question of what what should we do, what what kind of next steps uh, are there to to address this gap? I will say, and I'll, you know, another opportunity for a little bit of uh, advertisement of, of our work at the lab is we are actually writing in the process of writing a roadmap with some uh, colleagues from the Department of Energy and other national labs to basically expand on what more reforms and what the stakeholders might need to think about doing in the next two to five to 10 years to really get us to a new interconnection paradigm. I think if I can just mention a few really quickly, I think one key item is that we just need a better coordination between the interconnection and transmission planning process. FERC is doing this right now. They they have a rulemaking open related to this, but I think there's uncertainty about when that, that would get uh, released. I think second, we could use more automation uh, in the interconnection process. That's not to say that the process right now is manual, uh, but if we standardize what's happening across the country a little bit better, it will allow for data input validation and analysis to happen, we think, quicker. So there is a role for just technological modernization, not on the technologies that we use on the grid, but really the, the technologies that we use to process uh, these, these cues. And then finally, this notion of moving towards the energy only interconnection. And so for people who may be even following this, this is also known as connect and manage. 
And the idea is that we're focusing, or we should focus in our connection more on reliability and stability of the grid without focusing as much on deliverability and upgrading the network. Basically that you can manage transmission constraints in real time operation via some type of like curtailment process. Uh, and we don't need to upgrade uh, the, the grid so much. I will say that there's a really good uh, white paper that was just released on this by a, a guy named Tyler Norris over at Duke would recommend that. I can uh, link that for, for y'all's show notes as well. Uh, so those anyways, those are the three big ideas I would I would mention here. Excellent. Thank you. Well, that's great. And and we certainly will have links to Tyler's analysis uh, and, and all the other uh, analyses that we've been talking about today, including including your own uh, from Berkeley. Um, so this has been great, Will. Uh, I'd love to close us out with the last question that we asked all of our guests, which is to recommend something else to print out and bring to the beach with you, or maybe to watch on your uh, TV or listen to on your, uh, on your phone. Um, so what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Yeah, so I recently read an autobiography that was written by Arthur or Art Rosenfeld, and that was entitled The Art of energy efficiency. And so for those who don't know him or aware of him, you know, Rosenfeld is this guy who's sometimes been dubbed the godfather of energy efficiency. And so anyways, he wrote this, I think sometime in the 90s, and it documents his professional life. He ultimately moved into the world of environmental research, ultimately becoming an energy efficiency pioneer. Uh, and it documents uh, that uh, and how he developed some of the first energy efficiency standards. And those saved billions of dollars. And so, you know, I will really quickly say, because I know that that maybe is a little bit high on the, the nerd meter. The second recommendation for those who have not already read them are my, the books by Octavia Butler's Earthseed series, uh, starting with the parable of the sower. So I'm a huge science fiction nut, and I recently reread these books a few months ago. They have they focus on themes of climate change and social inequality. These are apocalyptic stories and they're very heavy at times. So for me, rereading them with talk about the environmental struggles and the human condition, it was somewhat of a sobering reminder that, that we've known about these problems, you know, that, uh, that we've been trying to solve, you know, for quite some time. I think the first book was written in 1993. So I was just a kid. And I think that was a, it's important motivator for, for why, uh, you know, I'm doing the work that I'm doing. Awesome. Thank you. Well, really interesting recommendations. Uh, both uh, sound like great additions to the stack. So once again, Will Gorman from Berkeley National Labs, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Yeah, no, thank you for uh, having me, Daniel. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. 
Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.